This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... My World Lutheran News Digest host, Kip Allen. Christendom suffered one of its worst defeats 566 years ago. On May the 29th, in the year of our Lord, 1453, the city of Constantinople, the last remnant of the Roman Empire, fell to the Islamic armies of the Ottoman Empire. This opened Eastern and Central Europe for conquest. I speak with Islamic and Arab historian Dr. Timothy Furnish about the significance of Constantinople's fall on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's Fast Track. A St. Louis judge said yesterday he will work quickly to decide whether Missouri's only abortion clinic can remain open after a hearing on a lawsuit aimed at forcing state health officials to renew the facility's license to perform that procedure. He delayed the hearing on the merits of the case until this morning. Women's health care and abortion provider Planned Parenthood sued Missouri last week after state health officials refused to renew the license of the St. Louis Clinic called the Reproductive Health Services of Planned Parenthood because they said they were unable to interview seven of its physicians over potential deficient practices, this according to court documents. Judge Michael Seltzer intervened on Friday before the clinic's license to perform abortions was set to expire hours later, issuing a temporary restraining order against against the state at the request of Planned Parenthood that enabled the clinic to continue providing the abortions procedures. After listening to arguments from both sides on Tuesday, the judge said that he'll work expeditiously to come up with a decision in the case, according to a court spokesman. The New York Times has dropped the term fetal heartbeat last week from its coverage of newly passed piece of legislation that will heavily restrict abortion in the state of Louisiana. The bill was passed by a margin of 79 to 23 in the state legislature last Wednesday and signed by Democratic Governor John Bill Edwards on May the 30th, making Louisiana the fifth state in the U.S. to introduce a ban on abortion from the moment a heartbeat is recognized in the unborn child. In its new News report last Wednesday, the New York Times referred to the fetal heartbeat as embryonic pulsing. The introduction of this new phrase comes very close on the heels of a May guidance reminder issued by NPR, which asked journalists to refrain from using the term heartbeat to describe the reverberations and activity that begin to appear in an unborn baby about six weeks into the pregnancy. Dr. Russell P. Dawn of Irvine, California, has been appointed the 12th president of Concordia University, Chicago River Forest, Illinois, replacing the Reverend Dr. Daniel L. Gard, who announced his retirement last October. Dawn will begin serving August the 1st. The 52-year-old Dawn holds a Ph.D. from the University of Oxford, England, as well as a J.D. and M.B.A. from the University of Colorado. This is World Lutheran News Digest. This is the Lutheran Varta Parivadi Agunu. This is Lutheran Samachar. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Furnish, who's an expert in Islamic history and Arab history. The reason I invited Dr. Furnish on the program today is because on May the 29th, just about a week ago, 
we observed the 566th anniversary of the fall of Constantinople to Muslim forces. I think it's fair to say that that is perhaps one of the most catastrophic days in Christendom. Is that correct, Dr. Furnish? Am I, am I reading that correctly? I think that's exactly right, Kim. Well, let's give a little bit of background here. The Byzantine Empire, which was actually the Eastern Roman Empire, was last of the, uh, the last remnant of the old Roman Empire. Uh, its uh, capital, Constantinople, was on the uh, Bosphorus, you know, right between the link between Asia and Europe. And for years, Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul, was the bulwark against Arab expansionism. They desperately, the Ottomans especially, desperately wanted to expand into Eastern and Western Europe. They couldn't do it so long as Constantinople uh, stood there. They tried it once in... uh, 1674, 1678, they tried it again in seventeen in 717, 718, and that didn't work. They kept right on trying. And then finally, in 1453, they succeeded. And they did indeed run rampant throughout uh, Eastern Europe. Twice, as a matter of fact, they laid siege to Vienna. Right, and let, let me just make one small correction. It's, it's probably Muslim, not Arab, because you were right in that the initial conquest uh, for the, the initial converts, of course, the people that developed Islam were Arabs, uh, and those initial attempts to conquer Constantinople and the, Ro- the Eastern Roman Empire, as you said, were Arabs. By the time we get past about the first millennium, the Arabs have really taken a back seat, and the people that are driving it are the Turks, who, of course, were also Muslim, but they had come in from Central Asia uh, in really like the, the 9th to 10th century A.D., converted to Islam, been recruited into the armies that were what were then Arab empires, particularly the Abbasid Caliphate with its headquarters at, at Baghdad. But really, they had started, they had developed their own polities and kingdoms and sultanates, and, uh, and then, of course, out of that, there are two major groups of these Turks, the Seljuks and then the Ottomans, or what were actually in, in Turkish, the Osmanla Turks, uh, but that gets turned into Ottomans. So they, they were the ones that eventually became the most powerful finished off what was left of the Eastern Roman Empire, and then, of course, as you said, uh, just as of last week, 566 years ago, took Constantinople, which is really really pretty much all that was left. There were some possessions of the empire down in Greece and a couple around the Black Sea, but for all intents and purposes, it was killed. And remember, again, I always tell my world history students, and, and it was good of you to point this out, if you had taken a time machine back to 1000 A.D. or 800 A.D. or something, any of that period up to 1453, and landed and said, take me to the Byzantine emperor. They said, I have no idea what you're talking about. We have a Roman emperor. And, and the, you know, they never used the term Byzantine. That was something that historians later, uh, you know, came up with in order to differentiate the surviving Eastern Roman Empire from the Western Roman Empire, which had collapsed in about 476 A.D. But yeah, you're exactly right. The, the big thing about this empire is, of course, that it was Christian. The, the entire empire had become Christian, not under Constantine. A lot of people get this confused. Constantine, in the early 4th century, the first... Well, he may have been the first Christian emperor. I'm actually working on some research right now, Kip, and hopefully to write something in the not just the future. Uh, an emperor before him that may have very well been a Christian, a Philip the Arab, who was emperor about 60 years earlier. But of course... Even if he was personally a Christian, he um, he didn't he didn't do anything in the public policy arena to you know to, to help Christianity as Constantine did. So once Constantine becomes emperor of the Western Empire, in you mean the Eastern Empire? 
Yeah, the early fourth century. No, he became emperor of the West. He became emperor of the Western Empire and then took over the Eastern oh, Empire. Oh, okay. I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The empire had been split. Not to get into too much Roman history here, but uh, Diocletian had split the empire into two back in about 285 AD because the empire, the empire was having such a hard time. And one of his, he he had uh, sort of diagnosed the problem as being simply too big for one man to rule. And so he split it into two halves, an eastern and western half, each with an emperor and an assistant emperor, which, of course, eventually only made the problem worse, because then instead of having this one guy besieged, um, you know, one guy with problems, you then had four guys with problems, each of whom thought they should probably be the sole emperor. Yeah, Constantine came out of the the Western Empire. He and his father were both generals up in, the, you know, basically what is now France and Belgium. But Constantine took over. He was Christian, famous conversion before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 A.D., when he put a, uh, a Cairo cross on his soldiers' uh, shields, and then they conquered. But he, he didn't rule the whole empire. He eventually did take over the whole empire and made Christianity legal. Uh, he never made it the official religion. Paganism was still out to exist. It was not until much later, in the, toward the end of the 4th century, that it was made the official religion, and the and pagan the pagan temples were closed and that sort of thing. Well, putting it into perspective, mm-hmm. in the in the terms of the 15th century, mm-hmm. uh, there were two main branches of Christianity at that time. There was the Roman mm-hmm. Church based in Rome, and then there mm-hmm. was the Orthodox Church based in Constantinople. Those were the two main political centers of Christianity at that time. If I'm if right, I'm not mistaken, right. we're 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 we're, we're quite a few years before the Reformation, right? So there, there are there are some other sects and subsects, and there were still, you know, a lot of the churches in the Middle East and further to the East were, 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 were Nestorian, for instance, and you could argue that perhaps like the Ethiopian church was a bit different, and you had, you had a few, you, there was even some pockets of, um, of the old uh, Cathars uh, in France, but yes, in terms of, you know, probably 95% of the world's Christians you would have subsumed them under Roman Catholicism in the West, under the Bishop of Rome, who by then, of course, had firmly established himself, at least in his own mind, as the Pope. And then the various, probably more accurate to say, the various Orthodox churches, who, who for the most part, shared the same theology, but, but, but jurisdictionally were different. You had the, of course, the Greek church was the large one then, which, which officially you know, was, was headquartered at Constantinople, but you also had, by that time, you had the Russian church, uh, you had various and sundry churches in the Middle East that were that were um, to one degree or another underneath um, underneath uh, the Greek Church. But yeah, basically, large mass of Christendom had split, and the official split had been when in the year 1054, when uh, and I forget which pope it was. It might have been one of the Clements. I can't recall. Uh, declared an anathema on the Eastern churches and basically excommunicated them, and then the Patriarch of Constantinople then returned the favor. Was so-called great schism or schism. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> the great split was in 1054. And remember, too, what had happened before that. Uh, there had been there, there had been attempts to sort of help the Eastern Church, although it wasn't exactly a great deal of. Um, it, it was more political and military, I guess you could say, that than 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 it was um, philanthropic. Of course, one time out of the Crusades. And, and, and the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Empire, had gone through phases where, after the initial Muslim conquest, when they lost about half of their territory, they lost Syria, what is now the area of Syria, Jordan, Israel, and then Egypt, which had been part of the Eastern Empire, of course, for years. And then North Africa, on and off over the years, since the fall of the Western Empire. 
The Byzantines, the Eastern Romans, had stabilized the empire probably at about half the size it used to be in, say, you know, 600 A.D. before the, before the Muslim conquest. And, and as you pointed out earlier, the, the Arabs, initially, the first few centuries, it was the Arab Muslims that would make periodic attempts to attack. They would attack the Byzantines. They would make, excuse me, even make periodic attempts to try to take Constantinople, all of which, of course, failed. So the situation sort of stabilized uh, militarily for a while, for several centuries. But then in, as I said earlier, in the 10th century and the 9th century A.D., you had two large groups of new new sort of fresh converts to the Islamic cause coming in. You had a group called the Seljuk Turks, and then later the Ottoman Turks. And it was the Seljuk Turks that were involved with the Crusades. They had come in and, and, and they had renewed the jihad. The Arabs had sort of gotten to the point, especially with the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, where they were coexisting, I guess you could say, with the Byzantines. And, and in fact, some of the Byzantine emperors, uh, sons or daughters married, sons or daughters of, you know, the old dynastic thing. Uh, the sons and daughters of the caliph in Baghdad. And they got along for a while, but when the Turks came in, they were sort of, I guess you could say, reinvigorated or reinfused with the idea of jihad, and they renewed the, t- the attacks. And, and, the, and the key point here was in the year 1071, the Battle of Manzikert. Manzikert is in eastern, what is now eastern Turkey, over toward Armenia. The Byzantines lost a huge battle, lost entire army, something like 50,000 men. Uh, mainly through uh, just incompetence or battles they probably should have won, but they lost. This then allowed the, the Seljuk Turks at that time to start moving into and colonizing territory. And um, this was the proximate cause for the Crusades, because a few years after that, the Emperor Alexius, the Byzantine Emperor, Eastern Roman em- Emperor Alexius, sent a letter to the Pope asking for help. And people always wonder, why did he send a letter to the Pope? And, and the reason really was political, because the Byzantine emperors did not consider any of the rulers of Western Europe to be their equals. I mean, these upstart kingdoms like France and England and uh, some, some un, unholy conglomeration in the middle of Europe calling itself the Holy Roman Empire, which, of course, is neither holy nor Roman nor much of an empire. And, of course, the Byzantines took great umbrage at this, because there was one holy and Roman emperor on the face of the earth, and that was the guy sitting at the big, uh, you know, the, the, the big palace in Constantinople. It wasn't some guy who, you know, who couldn't read and write living in Europe. So they asked the Pope for help, and of course this resulted eventually in the Crusades, and uh, which went on, on and off from 1095 till about 1291. And, you know, the first Crusade was pretty successful militarily. It did take some territory and took Jerusalem. Crusaders only held Jerusalem for about 88 years. They lost it, and they were, really got it back. And so the Crusades went on and on, and finally, in the late 13th century, uh, the last Crusader states were basically expunged by the, uh, by the Muslim rulers of Egypt. And it's about that time, getting up in the 12, late 1200s and 1300s, that the Ottomans start showing up. And the Ottomans, interestingly enough, had conquered, come in and conquered. They followed on what the Seljuks had done earlier, they moved into what is now Turkey. What is now Turkey, or, or geographically Anatolia, again, had been really sort of the heartland of the Byzantine Empire, uh, and, and the Byzantines eventually lost it. And then, and then the Ottomans sort of leapfrogged around Constantinople because they couldn't take it, moved up into sort of what is now Macedonia, part of Bulgaria, that area up in there. And then they were, they were basically coming against the what was left of the Byzantine Empire, which was Constantinople and environs uh, sort of from both sides. The Ottomans probably would have conquered Constantinople before 1453, but they got there 
uh, how shall I put this? They got their rear ends handed to them by another guy <laughs> called Tamerlane. Oh, yes. Uh, or Timmerlang, yeah, who did not like them much. He was from Central Asia. He was more, the Turks related ethno-linguistically to the Mongols. Timmerlane or Tamerlane was kind of more Mongol. And he was trying to recreate the Mongol Empire that had been around, you know, a little bit earlier, uh, the century before, so with the initial Muslim conquest. And he, he used to live in daylight out of the Ottomans for a while, um, and then he eventually um, went away and then passed, and so the Ottomans renewed, I should say, the conquest, and, and by the time we get to, you know, May of, April, May of 1453, they've got uh, a lot of the crosswords, of course, you know, quickly exaggerate things. And one rule of thumb we always talk about in history is that in ancient and medieval chroniclers, you probably divide whatever they whatever they say the urban army is by a factor of 10, and you're probably more close to what it, what it really was. <laughs> you see numbers like 440, 150,000 for the Turks, probably more like 50 to 60 or 70. But this is up against a city that probably has at most seven to 10,000 defenders, and maybe a city that in its heyday had 500,000, 750,000, probably close to a million people, is down to a population of less than 100,000. This is the situation in April, May, I guess it's in spring of 1453, when the Ottomans are closing in on the city. Well, Sultan uh, Mehmet II... He was the uh, he was the uh, the Ottoman ruler at that time, and what I'm looking at here is that he ascended to the throne in 1451, and the Byzantines had sent a uh, an envoy to him congratulating him upon his ascension. And according to a contemporary report, and I'm quoting here. He swore by the God of their false prophet, by the prophet whose name he bore, that he was a friend that would remain a friend for the whole life, the friend and ally of the city and the ruler of Constantine the Eleventh. The historian Edward Gibbons said peace was on his lips while war was in his heart. Was this just regular politics, uh, a la Hitler waving around uh, peace treaties, or was this uh, part of the Islamic tradition of Takiyah? This time, it's probably more the former, Kip. Takiya, which is basically Islamically sanctioned lying to non-Muslims, is something that actually is more of a domain of the Shia Muslims. And although we see it in the modern world being used really by a lot of Sunni Muslims as well, the terrorist groups would do this, for instance, Back in that time, it really was much more an idea that was that was used mainly by the by the Shia. So, I think really what Mehmet's doing is basically basically just great power politics. Yeah, well, he, that guy was going to conquer Constantinople, come hell or high water, and you know he would tell people anything. And he basically assured a lot of the Eastern European rulers that he was not going to bother them either. And then, of course, that changed. But. Um, but basically, in the, in the sense of Constantinople, I think it was more just the typical sort of conniving great power politics that we see in other instances. Well, I think also he may have been interested in maybe in spreading the religion or maybe just in the power. But uh, it's kind of interesting, I think, is how he uh, inspired his troops. You know, over his and uh, again, I'm I'm reading from a contemporary report. Supposedly, Mohammed said to them. 
As it happens in all battles, some of you will die, as it is decreed the fate of each man. Recall the promises of our prophet concerning fallen warriors in the Quran. The man who dies in combat shall be transported bodily to paradise, shall dine with Muhammad in the presence of women, handsome boys, and virgins. And then, of course, he promised them loot. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that is standard issue jihad, going back to Muhammad, the original Muhammad. Mehmet, of course, is the Turkish name for Muhammad, and he was named after the original founder of Islam. Sure. Yeah, standard issue jihad, and that, of course, gives the lie to this, um, this uh, idea that's espoused by many in the modern world and the media and otherwise, that uh, this idea of reward for jihad is something that you know, ISIS or al-Qaeda just came up with. No, it's been around for a long time. You are promised paradise if you die fighting uh, jihad visabilallah, jihad on the uh, path of Allah. And, um, you know, they, they, they again, and again, as I said, I had sort of fallen into um, uh, the, the Arabs have sort of let that languish uh, after, I guess, you know, their centuries of conquest and had gotten sort of fat and happy living in their palaces. And uh, the, when the Turks come in, the Turks originally, of course, were you know, nomadic warriors from Central Asia. And once they converted to Islam, it just, you know, if you're already a nomadic warrior who likes to uh, plunder and, uh, you know, acquire wealth by taking it from other people, my gosh, when you're given a religious sanction for it, it makes you doubly happy to do it. And especially, also, of course, when you're told if you die fighting on this, you know, you go directly to heaven, do not pass go. So, so it's, it's a win-win if you're a Turkish warrior. Yeah, and if you win, you're... Again, there are a couple of other things he said. Be of good heart, for tomorrow we shall have so many Christians at our hands that we sell them two slaves at a ducat. We'll have mm-hmm. such riches that we will all be able of gold, and from the beards of the Greeks we'll make leads for our dogs. Their families will be our slaves. So be of good heart and ready to die cheerfully for the love of Muhammad. Yeah, and they did, and, they, and, and a lot of them did die. I mean, the, the losses were very heavy. Um, the, you know, Constantinople is a well-defended city, and... and um, uh, the, the, the Turks paid a high price to take it, but they did take it. And the Constantinople people knew what was going to happen if they lost, so many of them fought to the uh, to the bitter end, as apparently did yeah. Constantine the Eleventh. Uh, according to contemporary reports, he took off his royal robes and fought as a common soldier at the very end. Right, and we don't know what happened. I mean, he was certainly killed. Yeah, probably just thrown in a mass grave with the other with the other um, common soldiers. Yeah. Uh, another another group I wanted to discuss uh, that was involved in this were the shock troops of the Ottomans, the Janissaries. Mm-hmm. Now, they have a rather unique history. They were originally Christian, weren't they? Right. What's interesting about the Janissaries is that, again, it's an idea that's not new with the Ottomans. The Ottomans practice, the Ottomans use Janissary to a greater extent than other Islamic polities had. But there were, there, there's a, the idea of a Janissary... Basically, as you say, they were they were Christians. They were they were they were originally Christians. They were young boys taken from their families and uh, taken back to that time. What was the whatever the Ottoman capital was before Constantinople? Uh, Nicaea, I think. Iznik, I can't remember. Anyway, before what the, what the Ottomans used for capitals, the Ottoman main population centers before Constantinople. They were taken there, converted to Islam. They taught, read, and write. You know, three squares a day. Taught. You know, typical soldier life, and and um, they they wound up forming the shock troops of the Ottoman Empire, the Janissaries, Yenijeris in Ottoman in, in Turkish. But this had not again been original with the Ottomans. In fact, uh, the group I mentioned earlier uh, that had run the uh, that run the um, the Final Crusaders out 
this, uh, the Holy Land, 1291, or that area, actually Lebanon, was now Lebanon, northern Israel, a group called the Mamluks. The Mamluks ruled Egypt for a couple hundred years. They, in fact, took over from Salah Adin's dynasty, um, the famous Salah Adin, who ruled Egypt for a while. And, of course, it was the one that took Jerusalem back from the Crusaders in 1187. The... Uh, and, and this is there's a very good book on this if you're interested. Uh, Daniel Pipes called "Slave Soldiers of Islam." I think really there's a book version of the dissertation, and it talks about this. And, and and there were some other Islamic polities that did this as well. But basically, for some reason, and, and I can't even explain it to you, for some reason, these certain Islamic states, again the Mamluks and later the Ottomans, but the Ottomans then did it on a much larger scale, decided that they would use particularly Christian subjects. And, and forcibly convert them to Islam. Of course, there are some accounts from the time that actually some of the people um, were not totally averse to this, because, I mean, basically your life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short as a serf, in effect, farming the land. If you stay there, I mean, again, I'm not really defending it, but I'm saying it, it, wasn't, it wasn't totally looked upon as an absolute horror by everyone, because you can have your son stay there and, you know, spend the rest of his life with, you know, illiterate and with life in his hair, or he can be an imperial capital and he can be literate and he can be a trained soldier who makes a pretty good living. And in fact, they could rise to very high ranks. So it was an interesting system. But yes, the, the, this, these sorts of people uh, made up uh, the, the shock troops called the Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire. And what's interesting too, and you've looked at this, I'm sure, is that there were a number of Christian soldiers actually fighting with the Ottomans particularly, for instance, the Serbs. And, uh, you know, one could argue they didn't have any choice in the matter, because, as I said, people tend to look at that. If you just know a little bit about this, you tend to think, well, the Turks are coming from the east, and all of their all of their allies would have come from the east. No, the Turks had actually leapfrogged over across into northern Greece and Macedonia and that part of eastern Europe, and actually had conquered some of the areas over there already. And so some of the people in those areas were basically vassal states of the Ottomans. And one thing that, of course, in the medieval and ancient world that you did was you required your vassal states to provide troops uh, for your military. And some of these were Christian troops. Well, thank you very much for your insight. This is a fascinating topic. Uh, it's one that I, I really enjoy. I, I love history, and especially as it pertains to uh, how it affects our civilization and our faith. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.